0: Let me invite uh, the rest of you to open your Bibles to Zechariah, chapter 3. We're doing our um, series on how God restores broken things. That's really uh, a picture of the, of the prophets, especially Zechariah and Haggai uh, who are there encouraging these returning refugees who have been scattered and exiled all throughout Babylon uh, they've come back to Judea. They've come back to Jerusalem. And their charge is to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, rebuild a place where people could come and worship and hear hear the, the good news. Is it hot in here? It, I, I'm, I'm warm. I'm going to take this off and die on here. Oh, I, I, I had one of those mornings, um, the coffee... Uh, spilled everywhere, and um, I, I, was, I was eating my egg roll, you know, like I normally do in the morning, my breakfast egg roll, and you know how the soy sauce, when you kind of shake it out, sometimes it just, well, it got out of hand. Uh, my egg roll was good, but I was still hungry, so naturally I went for the spaghetti and meatballs, um, and that's a good breakfast item too, but I just have, I struggle sometimes to keep the meatball on my fork, okay? All right? Is that a bad thing? I don't know, uh, but Anyway, just forgive my mess. Sorry. Um, let's let's look at Zechariah chapter three. Let's stand in honor of God's word. Should have left my sweater on. All right. All right. This is God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan the Lord rebuke you, Satan, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge... Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Thank you for how it forms us and shapes us. Let us give ear to your word. Let us be changed by it. Let us be reminded of the access we have into your presence through Jesus, our great high priest, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So let's talk about the the priest and the prosecutor, uh, and then I want to talk about the priest and the presence, the presence of God. Uh, So. Let's talk about the priest and the prosecutor. You see two main figures here in addition to the Lord and His heavenly court. Uh, there's two figures that are prominent. There's Joshua and then there's uh, the Satan, the accuser. Let's talk about Joshua first of all. He's the high priest. He's a, a, a real person, not just a, 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 a person that, he's, that, that Zechariah sees in a vision. This is the fourth of eight different visions that Zechariah is given Uh, Instead, this priest is a real person. He's the high priest at that time, a contemporary of Zechariah, um, who is also joined in his uh, prophetic ministry by uh, a prophet named Haggai. And Haggai is another one of the minor prophets in your Old Testament. And Haggai is only two chapters long. Uh, It's a short prophecy. And it begins historically, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, just giving us a con- context. Haggai begins this way. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So this is that high priest, Joshua, who... Zechariah sees in a vision and the high priest is in the presence of God where only the high priest can go as the people's representative. There's only one person who's allowed to go into the most holy place, into that, that singularity of the presence of God on the planet. And that's the high priest. And Zechariah's having a vision of their high priest, in God's immediate presence. Uh, the, the priest, any priest for that matter, really serves a twofold function. The priest is God's representative to the people. So the priest is a set-apart, holy man who is God's messenger, God's um, uh, surrogate to the people representing God. And the priest, as a representative of the people, uh, of humanity, he goes in not simply as a holy person, but also as a sinner. And he brings the need and the sin of the people before God to to ask for forgiveness and to get atonement. Um, So that's when a certain priest, the high priest, can go on the day of atonement, if you 've ever heard uh, your Jewish friends talk about Yom Kippur, that is a Jewish holy day that is the day of atonement, and that commemorates historically, as you see in the Old Testament, when the high priest would once a year go before the the, the immediate presence of God in the most holy place of the temple and ask for god 's forgiveness for the nation, for the people and for himself so As the high priest, he's a unique person because he not only is representing humanity, but he's also representing the priesthood. So this is a very unique individual. Um, Joshua was, well, you know, this was tough. Uh, Joshua was a priest without a temple. He was a high priest without a holy of holies to enter into. And this meant that Joshua had had a, a very... Uh, problematic ministry because to be a priest without a temple is to be like a captain without a boat. Uh, It's like being, um, you know, a a pilot without an airplane. It's like being a barista (laughs) without a Starbucks. It's like being a sanitation engineer without a trash truck. Um, What are you going to do? So his ministry is, is hamstrung because there is no most holy place on earth for the high priest to enter, thus the call, rebuild the temple. Furthermore, Joshua's a mess. And he's going before the Lord in this vision. He's before the Lord and he is covered in shame. He's covered in filth. He's covered in, you know, you can fill in the blank and it's, it's appropriate. Uh, it's meant to be a repulsive image to anybody who has any sense of holiness, any sense of what's proper uh, for God's worship, they look at that and they go, "Oh, this is the worst thing that can ever happen, is for the high priest to enter God's presence in an unholy way, um, and the high priest would fear for his life in such a case." So I don't know if you've uh, ever experienced, you know, a morning like this. You uh, you're on your your way into work and you've got your travel mug and the lid's on loose, and there goes the coffee all over your shirt. Or yeah, you're out uh, for lunch and, uh, and you're with your friends and there goes the meatball right in your lap, um, right on your spitty sauce all over your dress, uh, whatever the case may be. And it takes you, uh, you, you can go to the bathroom, you can try to clean up, but until you can get back home or until you can get to your locker or until you can get to your backpack or whatever, you know, at school or at work or wherever you are, it, you're, you're gonna, there's going to be some time where you're going to feel pretty silly, even stupid. And God help you if you've got some, you know, presentation to do at work or in class or whatever. And you've got to stand in front of everybody showing off how you, of all people, cannot keep a meatball on your fork. Now, apply that tiny little sense of shame, that tiny little sense of embarrassment to what's staining our soul. to going into God's presence with the stain and the mess and the filth of our, of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt all over us. And that's a picture of our problem. Joshua is showing us morally what's going on with our, our heart, our soul, as we try to go before the presence of God. So. In verse 3, what you see is that Joshua is before this angel and he's, everybody's aware, the entire heavenly host is um, looking at him and he's clothed with filthy garments. In verse 4, the angel says, remove the filthy garments from him. And boy, what a blessing that is to Joshua to take off the filthy robe and the filthy turban and everything, and to have that reminder of sin and shame removed. And it's gone as far as the east is from the west. And he is no longer bearing his shame. But there is still a problem, isn't there? Imagine Joshua, filthy garments are removed. Now, Imagine it's you. Filthy garments are removed. And you're the high priest. And you're standing in the heavenly court in your linen underwear. And that's all you've got on. And you're looking for cover. You're looking for help. And look, look again at verses uh, 4 and following. The angel said to him, Behold, I've taken your iniquity, away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay, now now the, the, the fullness and completeness of the gospel is being revealed. Verse 5, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. So Zechariah's vision, you know, is showing him this heavenly court, this heavenly courtroom where his filthy clothes are removed. And that's a good thing, but that's not the only thing because Not only are his filthy garments removed, but he's given heavenly, pure garments, heavenly, pure vestments, proper attire for a formal occasion. Now, if only I had another shirt. Oh, look. Yay! it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? I feel a lot better now. Um, thank you for indulging me. Here's, here's what's going on. Uh, most Christians, uh, the conventional uh, communication of the gospel is Jesus died to take away our sin. Jesus, he's our high priest, he went to the cross and he... He took our guilt away when He paid for our sins on the cross, and it's finished. And so as far as the east is from the west, our sin is removed from us. And that's how people view the gospel, and that's, that is good news. But you know where that leaves people? In their underwear. That leaves us wonderful. I, I've had my filthy garments taken away, but I need, I need something else. I need something more. I need a robe. I need righteousness. Listen to how Isaiah 61 puts it. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That is a Full gospel, that gets you know, the first half, Jesus took my sin away, but the second half is that he gave me his righteousness. As a gift, he gives me the robe of righteousness. And that's that's the second part of the good news that makes it great news and not just good news. So, you know, one way to think about it is this: if if your gospel is only half of the gospel, the the half that says Jesus took my sins away. You, you really have reduced the gospel to sort of like an episode, a 30 or an hour-long episode of Star Trek. Because all you need is Jesus on earth for about three days. You need him, to, they need to beam him down from heaven and he's going to die on a cross on Friday and he's going to be buried in a tomb for the next two days and on the third day, Sunday, he's going to gloriously rise from the dead for our justification and he's going to be beamed up, you know, and it's just that simple. That's all you need for Jesus to take your sins away. But that's not what happened. The gospel isn't an episode of Star Trek. The gospel is the account of a man who was born of a virgin and lived the life that we all live and lived through our weakness and understands our infirmity and understands our weakness. And he did that for 33 years. Why? What was he doing during that time? He was serving as the new Adam second Adam, the new humanity incarnate, a new hope for us, a new representative of, of righteousness, obeying the law, never sinning, keeping the law, so that when he went to the cross, by faith in Jesus, not only is he our sin substitute who takes our sins away, but he's our righteous representative and he gives us this robe of righteousness to cover us. So that when we can go into the presence of God, not with soiled garments, not with no garments, but with the the righteousness of Jesus, and that robe is given as a gift to all who trust in Jesus. Does that make sense? You see how that's not just sort of half the gospel, but the whole gospel, not just good news, but great news, because you and I don't go in to God's presence without proper attire. Um, Jesus told a parable about that. Let's get to this uh, second person in, the, in this episode, uh, the Satan, the prosecutor. Uh, there's this vision of Joshua and then Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, all of your Bibles have a, have a footnote at this point for Satan. Um, you know, the ESV has Satan listed as a proper name. It's capitalized and so on, but the original language, it's actually there's actually a definite article, the, in front of Uh, a role that this being is playing, the Satan. Um, He's the prosecutor. He's the accuser. He is the adversary. Uh, All throughout the Old Testament, we do get a picture of who the Satan is. Uh, He's the serpent, right? He's the the, the tempter and so on, the tester. Uh, So when you are looking at his role here in Zechariah, he's the prosecuting attorney, but he doesn't even get a word of accusation in before he's rebuked by the Lord. The grounds for this rebuke, the Lord said to Satan in verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O accuser, O adversary. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So the grounds for this rebuke and to silence the prosecution is that this one, this representative, this high priest who represents the people has been shown mercy. And that is God's prerogative. He can do what he wants. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will be gracious to who he wants to be gracious to. And there's no more condemnation for those who have been shown the Lord's mercy. So what more do we know about Satan or the Satan? Um, so, you know, not until the, the New Testament do we get a, a clearer picture of his identity, of his personality. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are some, some ideas and some glimpses, uh, but they don't give us, they don't set a whole lot of light on him, uh, except that he's an adversary of some sort. Not until the New Testament do you get to uh, these kinds of descriptions that he's the devil that he's the tempter, that he's the evil one, or that he's the prince of demons, the dragon, the ancient serpent, Beelzebul, the accuser, the enemy, and so on. And uh, and First Peter tells us that he's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Be on guard against him. Like you, I I know, and I listen, and I hear. You know what the conventional thinking is about what the church believes about Satan, and the rest of the world thinks that anybody that believes in a real being uh, who is opposed to God, a supernatural being opposed to God, they look at that as something sort of old-fashioned. It's not very sophisticated kind of Christianity, uh, and just sort of a holdover from old-fashioned, old-time religion. But he's very real in the Bible, and he was very real in his interactions with Jesus. And we're warned, actually, not, not to take him lightly, but to take him seriously. That he is, as Peter says, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And at our own peril, we ignore him or, the, or, or we, you know, treat him lightly. Instead, I prefer, uh, I like how Ann Boskamp Anne puts in, I've said this before, uh, she writes that he is a lion indeed, but he's a lion on a leash, to put it in her terms. That's a beautiful picture. Because nothing that the enemy does, nothing that the enemy can accomplish, as you see in the In the book of Job, nothing happens apart from God's will. We can't understand all the dynamics of God's will, and some of it frustrates us if we're honest and candid, and we can lament that. But the reality, the comfort truly is that Satan is a lion, but he's a lion on a leash, and God is sovereign, and God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are being conformed to the image of his son. And guess what? His son suffered. And guess what? His son was tested by the enemy. We're not immune. There is a real, ancient, evil, intelligent being, but he's on a leash. And nothing that he can do to you or to me is outside of the scope of your Father and my Father's will in heaven. The one who loves us, the one who counts the hairs on our heads, and the one who promises to bring us home to him, okay? So that's, that's the Satan. As we focus on Jesus, we don't get consumed and, uh, and distracted by the, the reality of Satan. We want to be aware of him, but our focus is on our champion, on our great high priest, Jesus. Uh, Joshua and the rest of his associates, uh, as, as the angel points out to them, they are a sign in this passage. The priesthood, the entire priesthood is a symbol to us of a great true priest who has entered the for real holy place, the holy of holies, of which the temple was just a a copy, just something temporary. And now it becomes the church. We are the holy place where God dwells and where he um, exists with his people. And Joshua, in particular, his Hebrew name is the name that is transliterated into Jesus, So Jesus is the true high priest and in Hebrews 7 we read this, that it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that is Jesus, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And so Joshua as a representative of humanity came before God with the sins of the people but guess what? Also his own sins. Jesus was a better priest. A different priest. Who yes brought the sins of the people before the Lord. But he didn't have his own sins to bring with him. And he was pure. And he was the priest and he was the offering. Hebrews 7 goes on. He has no need like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus offered himself. He was the priest and the sacrifice. And those who trust in him, like we've discussed, our sins are removed, and we get the righteousness of Christ applied to us. And that means that the guilty go free. You and I who have sinned and who have got, you know, spilled soil on our souls, you and I go free. We know we're guilty, but we're declared innocent. Is this that's the gospel, but but let me probe a little bit of how you process that. Is this a legal loophole to you? Is the gospel sort of just like a is it just a technicality where all right, I can believe in Jesus and I can be spared from hell and I can go to heaven when I die, but, but God's not really happy about it. Heaven's not really happy about it. Nobody's really happy about it. Just like those people, you know, who somehow in these courtroom dramas and as they play out in real life, we know the guy's guilty, but they've got some, you know, ace attorney. And through that little bit of legal manipulation, a mistrial is declared, and the guilty go free, and nobody's happy. Justice isn't satisfied. It's a miscarriage. Is that the gospel? Don't ever forget. Don't ever forget that when Jesus died on the cross, he said it's finished. That when Jesus took our place, He died as our substitute, meaning that the penalty for our sin really was poured out upon Him. Justice was served. God is satisfied. Heaven is satisfied to look on Jesus as the one who takes our penalty away. And therefore, the anthem of heaven goes like this from Revelation 19, hallelujah, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So it's not like you and I go to heaven amidst the grumbling of a bunch of the heavenly hosts. Who let him in here? How'd they let her in? That's not what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is not going to be everybody shaking their heads looking at all the people who got in because of the legal loophole of Jesus. Tisk tisk. Instead, it's a party. And it's joyful. And the problem that we have is, is, well, we can't seem to be cured of trying to prove ourselves unless the gospel speaks to that. Remember Downton Abbey? Ran for six seasons. You know, this thing that sort of this cultural phenomenon. Everybody wanted to go move out to the Crawley Estate in, you know, proper England and have lots of spoons and lots of forks and lots of fine china at every meal. Um, fun show, and I, I, it was incredibly well-reviewed and so on. And So if you, if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, it was just high culture, aristocratic, um, post-Edwardian England. Remember Tom? Tom's the chauffeur. Tom's the, the mechanic, the engineer, the blue-collar boy who somehow catches the eye of one of the daughters, and they secretly get married, and now Tom's part of the family, and poor Tom, trying to fit in, you know, the Crawleys are looking down their nose at Tom. Tom can do no, will, no good, but they love their daughter, so they got to love Tom, right? Tom's trying to prove himself. Tom's trying desperately, I want to fit in, I want to get in this family. I mean, he's stuck because he also doesn't like a lot of, you know, highbrow stuff. But we are all basically Tom. We're all trying to fit in, we're all trying to prove ourselves. We feel like I've, I've been, I'm married into the house of God, I've got Jesus as my groom, but the heavenly hosts aren't very happy about it. And they've got to take me because I'm the bride of Christ, but they sure would rather have another. And our heart of hearts were anxious. And our heart of hearts were worried that we're not going to be accepted. And our heart of hearts were all looking for that heavenly welcome. We're all trying to earn our place at the heavenly table with all of its fine china and lots of forks and lots of spoons. But that's not the gospel. If you believe that, you're not believing the gospel. The gospel changes our understanding of who we are in relation to God so that we understand that we're loved. And our problem with proving ourselves is that we're focused on ourselves. The problem with proving myself is I'm trying to, to, you know, make amends. I'm trying to earn points. I'm trying to, you know, fill up my scorecard instead of where should my focus be instead of on myself? My focus should be on the high priest. My focus should be on Jesus. He's forgiven us in order to cleanse us. And He's renewed us in order to make us like Him. And He's inviting everyone to come into the the table, to come into the party, to come to the feast. Focus on the host of the feast, not not on yourself. And this is why it's so beautiful that God gives us this right of access in verse 6. Look back at Zechariah 3. So, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The right of access is what we all long for. Have you ever felt left out? Did you ever not get the invitation? Did it ever pass you by? You didn't get the email, you didn't get the Evite. You, you weren't included in the, the group text, whatever it was. You found out, you clicked on something on Facebook or you, know, you looked at somebody's post or some, you know, you know, something came in and you realized, oh, that's where everybody was last Friday. And you, you were left out. We have an entire generation right now that's full of, of anxiety over being left out. And we even have a little acronym for it, FOMO, fear of missing out that's just a, a picture. That's our current cultural picture of what's been true forever, ever since the, the Adam and Eve left the garden, which is we are afraid of not being accepted. And we're afraid of not being welcomed. And we're afraid of missing out. And Lewis writes about it when he says that the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged to meet with some response to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. This secret inside of us that hurts so much that we take revenge on it. The secret that we cannot hide and we cannot tell that we desire to do both. We cannot hide the fact that we long to be accepted and we we don't dare tell people that we're that insecure. And it's not just fear of missing out. It's not just FOMO that's going on here. It's eternal fear of missing out. E-FOMO. Lewis goes on to say that we can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally, and unspeakably ignored. He's referring to when Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. That is a real possibility. Or, On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. We walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. And do you know what the difference is? Do you know how you'll know which one you hear? The gospel always says welcome. The gospel says, I don't care what you've spilled on your shirt. I don't care what you've spilled on your soul. You're welcome. Come in. Come to the table. Come to the feast. Come to Jesus. Focus on the high priest. But If you don't look to Jesus, if you don't focus on the high priest, if you're not looking to be cleansed, you're trying to prove yourself and your focus is on yourself. And you'll never come in. Hebrews 4 goes on and says, since we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our high priest. Let us fix our eyes on Him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and tested as we are yet without sin. And here's the point. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We have access to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This, um, this prophecy, after we're, you've heard about the priest's cleansing and he gets his pure vestments and he's told he has access uh, to the Father's presence, the whole vision ends at verse 10. Look at, look at verse 10 with me. It says, "...in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree." Um, Micah echoes the same promise in chapter 4. They shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Zechariah is promising this day that's coming. A day that's coming when the broken world and broken relationships are all going to be restored. A day that's coming when the world will no longer be a crooked, broken place that it is. When gardens will grow and people's needs are going to be met, there's not going to be any more hunger and homelessness and slavery and orphans and so on. I mean, all of that's going to be made new. And the world is going to be fixed with regard to relationships. And so all of the, uh, the places where we feel pain and rejection and accusation, those are going to be fixed. And um, we're going to be loving one another the way we're supposed to. And neighbors are going to be welcome under our vine. So that's what's coming. That's what's on the horizon. What can we do in the meantime? God has given us access to himself through our high priest Jesus. He's cleansed us despite our sin, despite what we'd spilled on our souls, and he's welcomed us and he's loved us. In the meantime, as we wait for that day, guess what we get to do? We can show the world, we can do for the world what's been done for us. That's what verse 10 is telling us, to go to our neighbors and to welcome them the way that we've been welcomed, to accept them the way that we've been accepted, to love them the way that we've been loved. Humility, if we understand anything from the gospel, it humbles us and shows us uh, the blessing that we've received. And if we have been humbled by the gospel, it means that we don't have to feel superior to our neighbors. And that if we've learned forgiveness from the gospel, it means that we don't judge our neighbors. And if we've been humbled and have received mercy from the gospel, it means that we don't walk by on the other side of the street from our neighbors, but we're, we're involved in their needs. And if we've been included and welcomed into the heart of God through the gospel, it means that we don't shut out our neighbors And if we've been shown the kindness of God through the gospel, it means that we don't hate our neighbors. We get to show this reality to the world. We don't exclude ourselves from them. We invite our neighbors into our lives. We invite our neighbors into our parties. We invite our neighbors into our victories. We invite our neighbors into our problems. We invite our neighbors into our failings. We invite our neighbors into our hurt. We invite our neighbors into our groups. We invite our neighbors into our church. We invite our neighbors into our community. And it doesn't matter what they've spilled on their shirt. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you love us, that you've forgiven us, that you've covered our shame, you've removed our sin and given us the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, please uh, burden the hearts, any hearts here who are considering an eternity without your grace, without your forgiveness, uh, who would look to themselves instead of to a substitute, who would look to their own merits instead of the merits of Jesus, or give them faith in a high priest, who would take their sin away and give them goodness, a goodness that's not their own, but would be a gift to them because of your love. Lord, would you show each of us how to show our neighbors the the love, the grace, the welcome, the acceptance that you have shown us. Help us to love them with grace and with truth. Help us to show them Jesus. We pray in his mighty name.